Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Hello there, my name is Des Cahill and today's visitor to the island is one of Ireland's greatest entertainers from Waterford. He's a world-renowned magician, mentalist and hypnotist. It's a pleasure to welcome Keith Barry. And Keith, I, I know every little boy and girl gets a magic set, but they don't become world-renowned magicians. Were you hooked from that first little set you got? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, I suppose, hard to find out online exactly when it all started for me. If you read Wikipedia, I think it says it started when I was 14, but that's actually not true. So for me, I started magic when I was about five from a Paul Daniels magic set. And ever since then, the magic bug just bit and, and I just loved the joy and excitement on people's faces and the, the face of amazement when they were fooled by a magic trick. But it goes from that cute little thing of a little boy or girl doing a magic trick for you to where you're actually, you become competent. So when you were 15 or 16, I presume you'd progressed into a, a more advanced area. How, not many kids are doing. How did your peers react to the teenage magician? Before I was 15, it was really just magic sets. But then I kind of I, you know, I really started to read a lot of books on magic. So down in the Waterford libraries, I used to go in during lunchtime when I was 15 and read the magic books that I found in there. And then I found some magic shops around the world where literally back then I was handwriting to them and they were sending me their catalogues back and I'd buy one or two tricks. But you're right, it was when I was 15, I started to perform in the public arena and I started to perform in the, in the wine vault uh, restaurant down in Waterford doing table hopping magic, going from table to table. And... The reactions were actually brilliant and even from my own family and, and friends it was it was great fun I think really because I, I didn't really enjoy school per se uh, certainly in those days so I suppose outside of school I had a great network of friends and we had a brilliant family growing up so uh, doing the magic at the parties and all that kind of stuff was always great fun and seeing everybody's reaction you know. And when you were in the restaurant what kind of tricks would you do? Were they, were they card tricks or? Yeah a mixture of everything so I used to do tricks with sponge balls and vanishing silk handkerchiefs and I used to have this you know card trick that I used to do which I still do sometimes today where the card ends up signed and folded coming out of my mouth so a a card selected by a spectator was signed by a spectator and ends up folded coming out of my mouth yeah so a mixture of of just real pure sleight of hand I suppose mixed with you know a lot of other hidden secrets as well you know is it like sport? You just have to keep practising and the more you practise, the better you get. You know, people ask me all the time, is this something I was born with? And not at all, it's a trained skill. You know, later on in my life, in my early 20s, you know, I was studying chemistry in college and my girlfriend then, who was my wife now, she was studying psychology and that's when I started to mix in psychology and hypnosis and mentalism into my work. But again, they're all learned skills and learned traits. So, you know, anybody, I suppose, can learn a trick. It's a whole different thing to turn it into a, a performance and a show. Uh, but ultimately, it's practice, practice, practice. I even say to a lot of kids that I mentor these days, a lot of young magicians, uh, I heard a saying when I was very young and it stuck with me. Now, it's a metaphorical statement. Practice until your fingers bleed, put plasters on, and then practice until the plasters fall off, and then you'll know you're good enough. So uh, that really stuck with me through all the years, even to now, you know. Is your science background relevant and important? Uh, not really now, I wouldn't say so. I think it's more 
important just from, I suppose, a, a social and lifestyle perspective. Because for me, uh, you know, my parents said to me, look, magic is great as a hobby, but you're going to college, which was really the right thing to do, you know. So I chose chemistry just it was more out of I suppose the, the fact that my uh, career guidance teacher who might end up listening to this uh, <laughs> Mr. Barry who I've, I've great fondness for but he told me he did one of those aptitude tests and he said whatever you do don't do science because I wasn't good enough at it so then I said well just out of a bit of rebelliousness that's exactly what I'm going to do which is science so I just picked science and I went to Galway University and actually turned out to be very good at science um, so any kids that are listening sometimes don't listen to your teachers I got quite good at, at chemistry but, but all the while of course I was doing magic and, and magic was in the back of my head uh, and you know I, I became a cosmetic scientist then so I used to invent women's makeup but most importantly it was when I was in college that I you know I suppose I met the friends that I have today and also learned how to live on my own and and actually even though we talk about it and it seems oh yeah you know, that's just kind of a uh, I suppose a normal thing to do for somebody in their their late teens well actually young magicians even these days they tend to drop out of school early and they tend to jump into magic full-time straight out of school and the problem there is a lot of them they just can't make ends meet and they don't know how to live on their own they don't know how to function on their own so from that perspective uh, you know I think the going to college was amazing and and yeah I suppose separately from that even though the actual content content that I learned as a scientist isn't really relevant now I have a scientific mindset anything that I examine or you know look into I look into with logic reason and with a scientific yeah. mind yeah. so even with the hypnosis aspect of what I do where I, I work with clients you know to help them get over everyday problems using hypnosis um, I examined hypnosis from a scientific perspective first as to make sure that it was a real thing you know I empathize with your parents you wanted to just go and do magic and they pushed you to college obviously yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. Yeah, they were like, it wasn't really an option. Like, they, they, they were very supportive of my magic and still are. You know, we're great friends, me and my parents, uh, even though they're my parents. And, but back then, it was the right thing to do to say mm. to me to go to college. And I wasn't really resistant to it, to be honest. Like, I wasn't at that stage ready to be a full time performer. So I was kind of excited to leave Waterford and just go and explore a little bit anyway. So I was more than happy to jump on a, a bus at the time and get up to Galway, you know? Well, your first musical choice. It uh, goes back to your dad. I think I get the performance aspect of what I do from my dad. My dad is, you know, he's an amazing character, has amazing charisma about him. And he, way back when, you know, I'm talking about like probably 40 years ago now when I was just three or maybe four years of age, he was the always the lead in the tops of the town in Waterford. I'm sure you're familiar oh, with did, the tops yeah. of the town, Des. But... Yeah, so he was always the leads in those. So he was always uh, Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph and Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Raincoat. And, you know, he was well known around Waterford and the, the Munster region as a performer, as a singer. What's, um, what's his first... When he met my sorry, mom, Keith. They, what, sorry to cut across Ken. What, Ken. And, yeah. Ken Barry, yeah. yeah. And you can actually find little snippets of him up on Facebook there. There's a Waterford page where they, they're putting up old footage. But when he met my mum, my mum openly admits this, she said to him, it's either entertainment or me because she didn't want to have a, a partner who was travelling the world. So, so that was the end of that for him. But when I was young, he was always singing. You know, the Rhinestone Cowboy was a great song he used to sing. But I remember when I was very young, he introduced me to the world of Joe Cocker. And I'm still actually a massive fan of Joe Cocker. I play Joe Cocker for my, my own kids now who are 11 and 8. And his favourite song, which he still sings now, and he sang it last week, actually, uh, over here in the house when uh, finally he could come over for a visit. Uh, you Are So Beautiful by Joe Cocker. Amazing song. And as I said, my dad sang it just last week to me. 
Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Lovely song. You are so beautiful. That's Joe Cocker, the choice of today's guest, magician and mentalist Keith Barry. Keith, you mentioned that when you went to college and did science, you then got a job while still performing as a magician, but making perfume. I was working with Oriflame, which is a, a Swedish cosmetics company. They're still based in, they moved, when I was working for them, they were in Sandyford and they're now based out of Bray. They still have their research department down there. So yeah, I was quite good at that. I ended up using using my skills there uh, in my magic a little bit as well, uh, because I used to make my own flash paper, which is paper that goes up in a, in a big ball of fire without any smoke. Very dangerous thing to do. But ultimately, yeah, I was in there and I was making biphasic eye makeup removers. I I was making foundations, creams, emulsions, you name it, I was doing it. And because there was no animal testing, we were actually testing, people don't realise, we were actually testing this stuff on ourselves. So when <laughs> I was making the biphasic eye makeup remover, I used to have to put on mascara and shake my own bottle up and then rub off the mascara off my eyes and see how oily it was and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, it didn't last too long. I was there for about two and a half years. And did you go then go into full-time into the magic? That brought me from when I was 21 to about 23 and a half. So that's 20 years ago now. And it was around about then that I just decided, look, if I'm going to do this, I better do it now and not live with regrets. So I, I, I was working in the kitchen nightclub at the time as well, every Friday night as the resident magician. So I managed to blag my way in there and become the resident magician in there in the VIP department, or VIP section rather, every single week. So all these celebrities would be coming in and I'd go over and do magic for them. And I think it was because I was getting quite known in Dublin at that time from being in there that I decided to jump into it full time. And of course, you have to make ends meet. So I was living in a tiny little apartment in Dublin. I basically was just waiting for the phone to ring every day, but I was doing everything. I was doing kids' parties, anything that I could. I, was, I ended up being the resident magician on the boats from Ross Lair to Roscoff and Cherbourg in France as well. But then I was also doing weddings and corporate performances and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I jumped into it full time. Yeah, you, you worked hard at it. I mean, you were to gather this international success, I mean, the US, Australia, but your TED Talk... It has something like, it has 20 odd million views. The, the TED Talk has about, I think about 20 million views on their site, but then they have it on YouTube as well, where it has another 13 million views there wow. or something like that. Yeah. I've lost count. But yeah, it's amazing because I think people don't really understand the power of TED because, you know, there's a subsidiary company, which is TEDx. And a lot of people do TEDx, which is fantastic. You know, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. But I think the real power comes, luckily for me, from doing a TED Talk because I got a huge amount of work from the back of that TED Talk. And I still do, weirdly enough. Basically, it's uh, for anybody who isn't familiar with the platform, I still look at TED Talks every day, Des, just to feed my brain. But it's basically technology, entertainment and design professionals who give a talk about specific areas and mine was on brain magic and it was very unnerving at the time the type of people that were in that audience and that was my first real talk that I ever gave all these years later and it's still been the top 25 TED Talks of all time you know deep down I'm, I'm quite proud of that you know oh, it was massive I mean it's extraordinary success was it easy transfer as a young Irish guy say to an American audience you know, I don't think anything worthwhile comes easy, to be honest. Uh, you know, I, I, even now I work, my average working day is 15 hours a day and it only goes up from that. It never really goes down. And even back then I had that work ethic. But, you know, from the perspective of being Irish, I actually think it probably helped a little bit, you know, because you tend to stand out. You know, there's, so when I landed in America, for me, yeah, it was helpful, I think, to stand out as a magician. And, you know, you can kind of turn on the charm over there a bit. You know, you see people like Colin Farrell doing it all, and, you know, other artists, Liam Neeson, people like that. And, you know, I 
think we do have the ability to turn it on a little bit for the US audiences. Mm -hmm. And even even in modern day times, Aidan McCann is doing wonderful. Like a, a young magician, he was on Ireland's Got Talent, and now he's he's been on Ellen a couple of times himself, and he's only 11 years of age, you know. And, and you can see even Aidan knows how to turn on the Irish charm to the American audience, you know. <laughs> Let's go to your second musical choice. Keith Barry, it's the fun-loving criminals. What's the story behind this one? The MTV Music Awards came to Dublin many, many moons ago, and there was kind of after parties all over Dublin at the time, and I was in the VIP section of the Kitchen Nightclub, but there wasn't too much going on in there, you know? I think Christy Turlington might have been in there, but that was kind of about it. So I was wondering, where are all the celebrities? I ended up going into... Eamon Doran's pub with a couple of friends of mine and again it was it was a shut down pub at the time because they were having an after party and I managed to blag my way in we told the doorman I'll never forget it we told him we were the Edge's cousin I don't know why we even came up with that but that, that was our excuse but actually somehow we got in there and when I went in again there wasn't too much going on so I was saying to my friends where are all the celebrities and this head popped in and he goes yeah man I'm wondering the same thing too and it was Huey Morgan from the Fun Loving Criminals and for people who I suppose they might know the phone of criminals but probably don't know that maybe 20 years ago they were huge they were so huge they were doing two nights in the point at the time it was like they were massive yeah. so I was like kind of stunned and I started doing magic for Huey straight away and he said um, would you like to come to our show in the point and I said yeah and he said I'll invite you later and he walked away and I was like but you don't have my number I'll find you don't worry and that was it. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. I'll never hear from him again. And the next day I was in work in Oriflame with my lab coat on. We weren't allowed to have our mobile phones on us at the time. And I remember just thinking, I wonder if there's any chance that Huey Morgan might ring me. So I'll leave my mobile on. And of course, nobody thought anything of it because they all thought I was mad yeah. that you know Huey Morgan was going to ring me. But the next minute, the phone went off and it was Huey Morgan. I said, you're on the guest list plus two for a show at the point. And I, and I didn't even get a chance to say, how did you get my number? Yeah. And that was it. And he was gone. And then we went out to the point. And the, the funny thing about it was we were actually seated two seats across from the edge in the point. He <laughs> was there cousin. himself watching the show. So it was, it, yeah, it all came full circle. And uh, so so 20 years later, I'm still in touch with Huey. I still go to his concerts all the time when they come over here to, to Dublin. So um, yeah, and, and I actually genuinely love their music too, you know, so uh, this is this is the, the Fun Loving Criminals by the Fun Loving Criminals. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's the fun, loving criminals, the choice of today's guest, Keith Barry, who blagged his way in to meet Huey by saying he was the Edge's cousin. That is the worst and most Irish blag I've ever heard, I have to say. <laughs> the <Edge's laughs> I don't know how it worked. <laughs> I still don't know how it worked. Your shows, I read, as you said once, a, a band can go on tour and they can play their greatest hits. It's easy for them. But you change your set all the time. That, that must be very difficult. Yeah, I made a decision years ago that if I was to start touring that I would change the show every single year simply because I think in a country such as Ireland, you know, I think especially with magic, once you see the trick, once you see the end of the trick, well, that's it, once you see it once. And, and you know, for a magician, we were always taught, you know, never repeat a trick in front of the same audience. So I made that decision early in my career and it's, it's challenging, but it's exciting at the same time to change it every year. And I find now when I look at comedians, not just Irish comedians, but comedians worldwide, a lot of them stick to the same set for years and years and years. And, you know, if I'm being truthful with you, I think it's kind of a lazy mindset. And for me, I'm 20 years now touring. So every single tour that I've ever done has been completely different, not than 
just the last year, but then every other year. And it excites me to do that. And, uh, uh, you know, last year's tour, which we were just at the tail end of, well, actually this year's tour that we were at the tail end of, um, was called Insanity. And it was insane, crazy, weird, bizarre material. There was all kinds of madness in there. And then we used to end every show with a full-on rave with lights and everything where the whole audience were up raving as part of a, a trick. Like, it was actually part of the trick for the audience to end up having to rave. So I, I like the challenge of doing that. And we're already now planning uh, next year's tour. We're going to start on January 1st in the INEC. And we're going to just figure out a way to make it work uh, with or without COVID being in uh, in the world, you know. But in that insanity show, for instance, I mean, you're talking of getting electrocuted and lobotomized. A lot of it's kind of shocking stuff. I suppose for me, I like to push the envelope. And every night, yeah, I was getting electrocuted into my uh, temples. And uh, and for people who saw it, I really was getting electrocuted. You could see the electricity arcing into my head. So not your average show, you know. And I think there's a place, of course, for magic shows and, and eloquent magic shows and kind of, I suppose, standard magic shows or classical magic shows. But for me, I always like to sit on the edge and have uh, a rawness to my performance that I think people can really relate to. I know that audiences enjoy some of the danger aspects that I sometimes put into my shows and they like to see that risk factor in the show, you know. Is that, how damaging is that to be getting the electricity into your head every time? Well, I'm still here and talking to you and uh, I think I'm pretty compassmentous. So uh, we might find out in 20 years' time I've done a bit of damage. But for now, I think the old, the old temporal lobe is doing OK, I think, you know. You've told the story about that dreadful incident with the, um, in the Olympia and the cling film. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago now. You can actually find grainy footage of it up online that somebody shot in the audience. But basically, every night, I was getting tied to a chair with 100 foot of rope by two random audience members. And then they got to wrap my head with a roll of cling film. The idea being that if I didn't get out of the rope and the cling film in less time that they tied me up in, I'd give them 500 euros each. And it was under the sin of greed in the Eight Deadly Sins show. So that was the, I suppose, premise. That was the presentation point. Uh, so the, the idea of two people winning that money used to encourage them to really tie me up very tightly. And this one particular night, two guys came up, they tied me up really tightly. And of course, you have to get your hands free first. I mean, that's kind of essential. And this one night, I was having problems getting my hands free. So I kicked over the chair and I went back and I winded myself and I went to breathe in. And of course, I breathed in basically a whole load of cling film and I just passed out on the stage and the next thing I remember is kind of coming to backstage and the, the shutter of the Olympia coming down and it was one of the I suppose the, the more risky moments in my life because if my team didn't come out and rip the cling film off my head I, I think the results could have been far worse you know and how does your wife react to that Keith well, you know, I kind of tend to do these things now and not really tell her that I'm doing them anymore. Years ago, I used to tell her, whereas now, I suppose the more recent one that I did was for RTE as part of my series last year where I was upside down outside the building, 150 feet in the air in a straitjacket, again with cling film around my face because I'd never filmed anything like that for TV before. And, you know, I did the whole thing and then I came back and she she was aware that I was filming, but I came back from the whole thing and she said, how was work today? I said, oh yeah, grand, have you any dinner there? And she just put on the dinner so I don't really worry her anymore by telling her I tell her after the fact Well Keith you've had an extraordinary life your third musical choice is Gold Fergus O'Farrell tell us about this Yes yeah, so we were up in Galway I, I still go to Galway quite often both to gig and just for fun maybe for a night out with, with my wife away from the kids so <laughs> I went up there one time a couple of years ago now 
and we met a, a fantastic musician friend of ours, a very good friend of ours, Morris Culligan. And Morris is part of Interference, which Interference at the time I didn't really know too much about, but it seems to be this eclectic mix of musicians that come in and out of a band that is called Interference. Turns out that Fergus O'Farrell is, is and was the lead of Interference for all the years, and I never heard of him. And, you know, Morris said to me, look, we're going to go to a gig tonight. Do you fancy coming? And I said, sure. So we went to Monroe's in Galway, and there wasn't too many people there. But I sat down, and it was my first experience hearing Fergus O'Farrell. And my mind was blown away. And at the time, you know, he, he had a, a disease, I think it was muscular dystrophy, basically meant that he had to be bound to a wheelchair. But I didn't really even notice that, to be honest, Des. I just noticed the gold, if you like, coming out of his voice. He had the most musical, silken voice that I've ever heard. And, and then it, it turns out even now that a, a friend of mine who's also a producer in RT, Michael McCormick, he's got a documentary coming out on Fergus. But ultimately that night, I ended up bawling crying in the audience and everything. I was so moved by this man's voice. You know, gold is just an amazing song. I know Glenn Hansard has sung it a couple of times as well. But ultimately that night was the first night I'd heard that song sung so well by Fergus O'Farrell and I became a big fan of his music. Unfortunately, he's passed away, uh, but it really resonated with me. And just the words in that song, just about, you know, staring out to sea and walking on moonbeams, all of that kind of stuff really resonated with me. And, you know, the idea being, you know, I suppose the love of a woman and that you wouldn't trade her for gold, you know. Well, look, it's a it's a, it's a beautiful piece of music. We're going to play out in that, Keith. Congratulations on all you've achieved and continued success to you. It's a fantastic story. Well done. Yeah, thanks very much. And if anybody wants to get in contact about any of the things that I do, just check out www.keithbarry.com. Thanks a million, Des. Thanks, Keith. And we'll play out with Gold and Fergus O'Farrell. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.